title of the message is Grace and Gifts Part 2. As we came to a close with last week's sermon, if you remember, I asked you to go about your Christian walk with a couple of things in mind. I ask you to go with the understanding that we are joined eternally to Christ and we are joined eternally together to each other. And I also asked you to remember the fact that it's within this God family, God hyphen family, that we are supposed to use our gifts. And it's with in this God family that people will benefit or should benefit from our God-given gifts. And in the context of being a benefit to one another, we see in verse 9, if you look there, of our text, the Apostle Paul telling us to let our love be genuine. Kind of the same thing Pastor Scott just said, you know. We don't want to be dishonest with one another. Let your love be honest. Let it be genuine. Let it be authentic. And Paul tells us that we are to love one another with brotherly affection and that we should outdo one another in showing honor toward each other. Then finally, we learned that when Paul says that we should outdo one another in showing honor, the Greek connotation there is that we should go ahead and love first. Remember that? Love first, not waiting for the other person to take the lead and love us first. Now, if everyone's honest in here, including myself, we are, however, at times, a tit-for-tat kind of society, aren't we? I'm not, I, I'm not calling him. I called him the last time. And besides, I always call him first. Phone works both ways, you know. He never calls me. You hear people say things like that? To that, the Bible says, who cares? <laughs> We, why, why do we have to be so petty? You know, you'll, you'll hear somebody say, you know, uh, he knew that we were moving our furniture this weekend and he didn't even offer to help. I remember we helped him last year and it was February and it was snowing and it was 16 degrees outside and we were there for him, but he's not there for us. You say things like that too. We are, however, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ isn't like that. We know that from Romans eight twenty nine that we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we know from the Gospels that Christ is not like that. He's not petty. Christ loves first. Just like the Greek connotation of our text. Jesus loved us first. And he certainly outdoes us in honor, doesn't he? He outdoes us in everything. I guess that's why he's not trying to be like us, but instead we are trying to be like him. And the Apostle Paul is trying to motivate us in these verses here. And he's doing so by first appealing to us with the gospel 
and then with personal care for one another. And as I said a moment ago, he calls us to let our love be genuine. That's verse 9. Some of you, those that are older, may remember the old Catholic folk song that became uh, very popular in the Catholic charismatic movement of the early 70s. And the song's refrain, they even used this in commercials. I think they used it in a Pepsi commercial. The song's refrain went like this. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. Everybody's shaking their heads. So good, I know that you know what I'm talking about. The song's sentiment is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, where Jesus says, but, I'm sorry, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the things that I love about this church, our church, is the love that I see between Yin's guys and that. Many of you not only speak to each other, beginning of service, after service, but you inquire about one another to see how each other is doing, feeling, if they're, if they're sick, and you inquire about each other's lives because you genuinely care about one another. And believe it or not, but you don't get that in every church. When someone in our congregation is sick or in the hospital, or as they say in England, in hospital, they don't say in the hospital, they say in hospital. Um, they also don't say university, they say uni. He's in uni. Anyway, when someone in our congregation is sick or in hospital, many of you line up to help that person and their family. You pray, you call, you text, you send cards, and most important of all, at least for me, you bring food to the family that needs your love during those hard and trying times. There have been times, actually, I can remember two times, when someone in this church was in the hospital or was recovering at home after being in the hospital, and I've had to make an announcement for people to stop bringing food because the refrigerator was full, the freezer was full, etc., etc. That's a good problem to have in a church. It really is. That's a church that's showing marks of authentic Christianity, authentic love for one another, which is the heading. If you look, if you have the ESV, um, it's the heading of that section there in verse 9. When we do these things, we are doing what Paul is urging us to do in our text. We are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices in view of God's mercies. We are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices in view of God's mercies. 
you can't help but be merciful because you understand how much mercy God had upon you when he saved you. This is a very important point in Calvinism. People don't tend to look at God in this way if they believe that they came to God and that they had everything to do with making a decision for Christ. On the other hand, when you understand theologically that God came to you first, that God chose you before the foundations of the world, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together in and with Christ, Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, then it's much easier to see God's mercies and to understand what it means for God to be merciful and for us to be merciful to one another. So you see, it's easier for a person to give when they understand just how much has been given to them to begin with. It's, it's also important for us to remember that just as we are gathering together this morning and reading Paul's letter to the Romans, so too when the Roman Christians gathered for prayer and to break bread, this same letter, Paul's letter, would have been read in their midst when it was circulating. Parts of the letter would have been encouraging for them on the basis of God's mercies toward them, and it should be a letter of encouragement for us also for the very same reasons. Reasons like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which most of you have memorized. Therefore, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's encouraging. That's something that I like to be read to me. I don't know of a better outcome of God's mercies on us and in us. Paul uses the Greek term. I meant to ask you this, Jason before the service and I forgot how do you pronounce that oitirman okay comfort or compassion okay I know I wouldn't do it justice if I pronounced it he takes Greek so anyway it means the mercies of God this word for the mercies of God in Greek can also be and is interpreted elsewhere as compassion or pity. So mercy, compassion, pity. And this Greek term is plural, which is why Paul says in our text, mercies of God instead of mercy, meaning multiple mercies. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapters 1 through 11. He uses it all through the book of Romans. And when Paul, he does so when he lists the incredible acts of merciful kindness God has performed for his people. Acts of kindness like choosing the patriarchs, 
rescuing Israel from Egypt, preserving a remnant of believers, and also saving both Jews and Gentiles all through Christ. So Paul is reminding his leaders that God incessantly bestows mercies upon his people. Now it's important to point out that the Roman Christians would have recognized this Greek word very plainly because it is the same word that they would have heard in the reading of the Psalms when they gathered for worship. You might be thinking, well, I thought the Psalms were written in Hebrew. Why would they be hearing the Psalms in Greek? The elders here at AGC have gone over some of what I'm about to say before in our teaching and preaching, but it bears repeating for both new people and for long-standing congregants because repetition is the mother of all learning, okay? You may have forgotten, so I'm going to say it again. When I said that these Christians at Rome would have heard this in Greek or would have heard this Greek word for God's mercies when they were in the Psalms or when the Psalms were being sung or read, I meant that they would have heard this Greek word in the Septuagint. As a reminder, the Septuagint is highlighted in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, by the Roman numerals LXX. So every time you see LXX, that means the Septuagint. And that is the Greek speaking, I should say, the Greek written Old Testament. Why was there a Greek Old Testament? Because the people spoke Greek. It's plain and simple. Romans spoke Greek. So there was also the Hebrew Old Testament that had been translated into Greek for them. Now, why is this so important for us to know? So glad you asked. It's important for us to know this because Jesus and his disciples quoted primarily from the Septuagint. To be exact, they quoted 340 times from the Septuagint in the New Testament. And they only quoted 33 times from what we call the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, Hebrew transcripts, okay? It's also important to point out that the Greek Septuagint is 700 years older than the Masoretic Hebrew text. Everybody with me on that? So for our purposes this morning, I want you to know that the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, is chock full of this word, this Greek word, anytime that the mercies of God toward his people are spoken of. So what's my point? My point is that when Paul told the Roman Christians to present their bodies as living sacrifices by the mercies of God, they knew exactly what he meant because they had already been exposed to this word and its meaning. 
And when Paul moved on to talk about their spiritual gifts, he says, beginning in verse 4, if you want to look at it, so as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts, Paul says, that differ according to the grace given us. Then he says, let us use them. They knew that he meant that their gifts would be the avenue by which those mercies of God would be distributed in the church. The mercies of God, they're distributed by the gospel, they're distributed through the word, and they're distributed through you, through your gifts and your love toward one another. Everybody with me? So, as I said last week, it's through your gifts that God has bestowed upon you that you can minister to and encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as we begin to see in a moment the remaining verses of chapter 12, we're going to outline a picture of what was most needed in the Roman congregation, and that in turn will show us what is most needed in today's congregations. We haven't changed, and neither have our gifts changed. Same gifts, same Christian gig. Once the gospel transforms us, the Lord calls us to what? Much greater service in our local body of believers, as well as in the lives of Christians that we may be able to minister to, even if they happen to be afar off, like a foreign missionary, for example, afar off, we could still do it through this church. You could still do it through your family, this ministering, this encouragement, this sharing of gifts. Each member of Christ's body serves and you serve with your particular gifts and talents. Now follow along with me, if you would. I, I just want us to get the context. That's why I'm going to read it again. Romans 12, 3 through 8, beginning with verse 3. For by this grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads 
with zeal, and the one who does, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, so we understand the context. A brief word now about sober judgment, Paul calls it. We have different gifts and callings, but it is God who calls and gives. You have to keep that in mind. A lot of people try to have gifts that they don't have. And that could be a problem. Um, a lot of people want to do certain gifts in the church because they feel that they have the gift and the talent to do it. We'll take teaching, for example. A lot of people want to teach. A lot of people think they have something to say. And they're eager to tell you that they've got something to teach. But when you hear them teach, you can plainly deduce that it's not one of their gifts. And it, it's hard to tell someone that. But, And I'm just picking this hypothetically. There are a number of gifts that people would like to think that they have that don't. Then there are those people who have gifts, tremendous gifts, and not only don't see it, but even when you try to get them to see that they have these gifts and they need to use them for the body, they refuse to look. They refuse to see it. I've seen people who have tremendous, a tremendous ability to teach and preach. Tremendous ability to be hospitable and to open their home up for home groups and small groups and whatnot. But they just won't do it. You know, so... Those are things we need to think of as we assess ourselves as Christians, as we go to the Lord in prayer, asking the Lord what it is that he might have us do. Ask the Lord, you know, what, what are my gifts, Lord? What did you gift me to do? And then if you think that it's, uh, there's a particular gift that you have, then ask the Lord in prayer to confirm it. And if you've got three people that walk up to you that week and say, hey, do you think maybe you might want to teach. Okay, take that as a confirmation. So these are the kinds of things, practically speaking, that we need to do. We need to assess ourselves, figure out in prayer, through confirmation of other Christians, through confirmation of God's word, through confirmation of reaction of people, what gifts do I have and where can I use them? So have a so that's a sober judgment okay of God's grace a attitude of humility this is a pattern that is exemplified first and foremost in Christ remember Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our example of sober judgment. He is our example of right humility. 
Martin Luther said this regarding, I should say, Martin Luther said this regarding why we should have a humble attitude concerning our God-given gifts. I'm going to quote. Luther says, In God's presence, all must tuck their tails and be glad that they can gain forgiveness. Let no one think that as long as he lives here, he can reach such a position that he will not need such forgiveness. In short, if God does not forgive without stopping, we are lost. We have a measure of faith that God has assigned. Faith receives gifts of grace from God's hand. This realization counters the human tendency to be puffed up about one's gifts. The measure corresponds to one's calling as it shows, end quote. So Luther got it. He understood thoroughly what Paul was trying to convey to the Roman church. Before we move into the actual spiritual gifts, I told you we would get into the actual spiritual gifts in this text this week. I lied. We're not going to get into that. But um, before we move into the actual gifts that Paul lists, I want to go down a rabbit trail of sorts here for a minute. I just feel led to talk about this. Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit. There are also additional ways in which we as Christians can support other Christians and Christian organizations throughout the world by our means and not necessarily our gifts per se. What do I mean by that? I mean that because we live in the wealthiest country in the world, And because we have so much as a result of living in this country, we are in the position to give immensely to others around the world and never miss a beat. I'm not talking about gifts here. Remember I said I'm talking about another way that we could bless Christians and bless ministries. And that's with money. She said it. Laura said it. Money. the love of which is the root of all evil, right? 1 Timothy 6.10. Many Christians don't realize, and this is why I'm saying this, Christians that I talk to, many of them, don't realize what good or how much good they can do just giving a very small amount of money to a Christian organization every month or every year. Many Christians don't realize that God, or or they don't realize what God says in his word regarding, I'm going to get more specific, regarding the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. Some translations say sojourner. Some say alien. Some say immigrant. I use sojourner. But you know what that means. Many Christians don't realize that God 
actually punishes Israel for not taking care of the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. Did you know that? And I want you to know up front that this isn't a political thing with me. It's not why I'm doing this. Okay? I'm not suggesting that immigrants should be let in the country illegally. It's not what I'm talking about here. No politics. I'm suggesting that we follow the law. And in following the law, we support scripture, we support ministries financially that are doing scriptural missions, scriptural things, and they're doing it well. Now, before we get into that, some examples of what that is, I just want to read some things to you out of scripture. There are 77 scriptures just about widows, by the way. Just widows. Um, in James 1.27, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now keep in mind that in 1 Timothy, we're given specific instructions as to what a widow who deserves money and help actually is or is defined as. This is a widow, according to Paul, who has no family to support her. No son, no daughter, no one left. So a widow who is truly worthy scripturally to get money from a church for help, material help, is a widow in that category. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't or you shouldn't help other widows. There are widows whose families live on the other side of the country and who need prescriptions picked up and they can't drive anymore or they need leaves raked or their grass cut or their driveway shoveled in the winter. These are still beautiful things in God's eyes that you can do for a widow who is well off financially but has no family around. You with me? Okay. So, you know, James chapter 2, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does not do anything about their physical needs, what good is it? So we see the attitude of Scripture here, and we see the attitude of God all through the Scriptures. Um, Hosea 14.3, for in you the fatherless find compassion. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Or Isaiah 1.17, learn, learn to do what's right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Psalm 82.3, defend the cause of the weak and fatherless, maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. 
I could go on and on and on. There, there is scripture after scripture after scripture of how to take care of the orphans, the widows, and the sojourners. God even tells the Israelites not to glean their fields all the way to the end so that, they could, so that there can be food left over for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. So, how do we put this type of mercy, this type of ministry, into play here in 2021 in this church? There are great ministries out there that need support all the time. I'll just name a few, okay? Um, one is Compassion International, okay? Which most of you have probably heard of. You can support a child somewhere else in the world who's living in poverty for $38 a month. You're not just supporting that child. What does supporting mean? It means a Christian education, two church services a week, medical care. Um, the education is so well dispensed that right now there are certain places in the world because of COVID that the schools have had to close. They're, they're even taking people, compassion workers, to the front doors of students' homes and working with them on assignments, school assignments, so that they can continue learning during COVID. Um, when you support a child, so let me say this, we used to support two, child, two children here as a church. Um, Pastor Wayne set that up. And he would take an offering from the kids each time that the kids assembled for the um, kids that we were supporting. And our kids would write letters to those compassion kids, and those compassion kids would write letters back. And this is the other thing that you, those of you that aren't familiar with Compassion International should know, is that when you support a child, you get a personal relationship with that child. You get a picture, and you get letters from that child. And I support a child that I've been supporting for nine years, and so I've watched this girl grow up. And I'm supporting another child from the same village who is a male. And so I'm watching them both grow up together, going to the same church. They call it the project. Going to the same church, the same school, and whatnot. And what's interesting is with these kids, you not only get to give that $38, but you could give additional money. You could give them money for birthdays, for Christmas, and you could just designate money for their family or designate extra money for the kid. And what's really cool is when you designate extra money for your compassion child, and that compassion child sends you a picture taken by Compassion International of this kid 
surrounded by everything that your extra money just bought them. School supplies, you know, a new dress, a new backpack, things that the other kids in the village don't have because they're not in the compassion program. I actually had a situation where I I had a talk I had to have a talk with compassion because apparently my money was purchasing too much for one of the kids. And the other kids started making fun of her because she had so many more nice things, clothes and whatnot, than the other kids in the village that didn't go to the Compassion Church. So that's how real, I say that to say this, that's how real it is. It's that real that you even get contacted when your kid's getting made fun of, the kid that you're supporting, because you're giving them too many things. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to support these kids. The majority of them don't have fathers, or they don't have fathers in the picture. It's a great, great ministry. You can also do things through compassion, like um, build, give so much money towards digging a well, because most of these people don't have clean water, depending on which country, which continent you're on. Um, if you're supporting kids in Africa, they especially have the issue of not having clean water. Um, the other thing you can do is you can give money to, this is also um, an African countries thing, um, to build toilets. I, I shared this one time, uh, out of cement. You have to build cement toilets because... There are so many termites in certain countries in Africa that when they build a wooden outhouse, the termites eat it in like a week. It's gone. So they have to build cement toilets so the termites can't eat them. So anyway, that's one ministry. And there's also um, Feed the Children. There's World Vision. There's Sojourners, which is about... Uh, Christian Martyrs, great ministry. You can uh, support them and have Bibles sent. You could have Bibles smuggled into countries through that ministry. Uh, I don't know if they use the word smuggled, but if you read between the lines, you can see that's exactly what they're doing. Um, so my, my point in bringing these things up is simply that even if you don't feel like you have gifts that can be used in church or in public, that sort of thing. Or maybe you're shy. Maybe you don't want to um, use the gift that you think you might have. You could be a very real support to these kids and to these other ministries if that's something that you want to do. And if you want a list of ministries, you know, just fire me an email or a text message and I'll, I'll make you up a list and get it to you. But it's part of us using what we have, our resources, for the gospel. Because these kids hear the gospel constantly through Compassion International, especially. And to feed them and clothe them and to take some of the oppression off the shoulders of their, their families. So I just wanted to throw that out there. <clears throat> and um, we will get to the to the gifts next time.
in this chapter. Let's pray.